This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Comisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to another edition of Lunchpail VC, where there is no fleece allowed. We give you a no-bull look at the industry of venture capital. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, managing partner of Bullpen Capital, along with my friend and co-host, the man who puts pro and pro rata, <laughs> Mr. Randy Comistar from Kleiner Perkins. Oh, my. Hey, Paul. Great to be here. Our guest today is Anne Mirako from Floodgate. And today's topic is crucial to any VC funds model. How does your fund size affect your strategy? At Floodgate, they believe your fund size is your strategy. And in my opinion, they're absolutely right. Your fund size shapes what rounds you can invest in, how many investments you can make, how big your checks are, and so much more. Not to mention how much you take of a given round. This is something we've discussed in several of our pods and a real issue in our industry. Funds are getting so big and need to deploy so much capital that they're blotting out potential collaborators. That's right. We give Floodgate a ton of credit, one, for innovating around the seed stage in VC way back in 2008 when almost no other funds existed, and two, quite frankly, for the existence of Bullpen. It was in brainstorming with Floodgate and a few other funds like First Round that we got the data and inspiration to find the empty spot on the board that we call Post Seed. And so without further ado, Anne Mirako, welcome to Lunch Pail VC. Hello. How are you guys? <laughs> hey, Anne. It is exciting to have you here considering how long we've been in business with you, quite frankly. T tell us about how long you've been at Floodgate. It seems like it's been a long time. Tell us about what the fund was like then and what the strategy was, because you were there pretty much since the beginning. Yeah, so I'll take you guys back to 2007 to 2008. I am a PhD student at Stanford, uh, thinking about starting my own company. And uh, I had, prior to the PhD, had some experience in venture capital. So back in the day, and when I say this to the young, young ones out there, um, they're shocked. I say, you know, the original first round check was five on five. So you sold 50% of your company for $5 million, and this typically blows people's minds. Uh, right. But that was sort of the reality even in you know 2007. But in my PhD program, what I was observing was uh, AWS had come out in 2006. And I remember walking into one of our group meetings and saying, you know, you know how the rest of us grad students, we have to run these servers and we all hate it. Why don't we put all this stuff in this thing called the cloud? And there were gradually some professors who were starting to embrace this, even by 2007. And you could see the writing on the wall of like, this was really an interesting thing you could do. And so I knew that there was some impact of that on you know, what, what the cost of starting companies or what the cost of actually building some technology would look like. 
And because I'd seen that in grad school, I was sort of teasing apart what that would mean. And as I was thinking of starting this, it was starting a cybersecurity startup. Uh, I run into Mike Maples, who's my partner here at Floodgate, and he's running around Stanford talking about five hundred thousand is the new five million. And when he said I, this in one of my classes, I remember I like perked up because I was like, "That's something I think is kind of right." And one of my mentors, Steve Blank had been looking at some of the ideas that I had. And he said, you know, you really should go find an angel and see what what the context is for startups today. So the first person I went to was Mike Maples. And I said, hey, can I see all of your deal flow? So we would get together every Wednesday and look at a bunch of his deals. And sure enough, the landscape was changing because this guy who was offering $500,000 was just seeing a steady flow of these young, really compelling entrepreneurs who wanted nothing more than $500,000. And it was then that he turned to me and he said, I just have this crazy idea. Like this isn't a venture backed startup like you wanna do, but I think I've just raised some cash and now I'm a backed venture startup. I need a co-founder. Let's go. And, you know, at the time, this is back before startups were really that cool. And there were not that many venture startups. I went back to some folks to talk to them about this opportunity. And I remember people saying to me, Anne, are you doing this because you can't get a job? <laughs> you know, <laughs> You should try like what one of my one of my mentors was like, maybe you should try to be an associate at Kleiner Perkins, you know? Oh my God. <laughs> and I remember I remember thinking to myself, Kleiner Perkins would never hire me, but like this guy just offered me a job. And right. um and so it was in that context, you know, you go to Y Combinator back in the day, there were maybe like 30 angels and like random individuals hanging around looking at the pitches of maybe 10 companies. Uh, that's where we got to enter into the marketplace. So, Anne, let me jump in real quick. And I know Randy's got a question for you, too. But you really paint an interesting picture for people who weren't around at that time. Even though Floodgate is now regarded as one of the great seed funds of its generation, Back then, other venture capitalists literally would pat you and Mike on the head and go, what is this funny little fund you run? $500,000 checks. When are you going to realize what this business is all about, kid? Yeah, it was. Uh, I just remember like most of the people I talked to suggested that I get a real job. And I feel like this is what startup entrepreneurs might must feel, right? They hear some 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 person who knows better and is maybe a little bit patronizing, and then you get mad, and you're like, "Well, they're wrong because," and this is the important part. I see something that maybe they don't see, and I know that it's true. And I remember I was explaining this to my mom because it was the worst time for me to start anything. It was 2008, the financial crisis in full swing. I haven't even quite finished my PhD. I have an 18-month-old daughter. And just as I start Floodgate, I become pregnant with our second child. And I told my 
dissertation committee. I was finishing up my PhD. So I had to defend my thesis six weeks after I gave birth to my second child. Like you could not even paint the picture of like the worst timing to start (laughs) a venture firm. But it's kind of like, in spite of the fact that those things were going to happen in my life, I was convinced that this was the right move at the time. And that's the irrationality of, I think, creating something and knowing that there's there's something about to happen. And I so I feel like I that's where my empathy for entrepreneurs comes from, is I've felt that in the past. So, so Anne, small checks early on, what difference does it make? I mean, how does that impact the the way in which you invest your funds? So the, the amount of money you need to raise in your funds, the amount of ownership that you have in any particular deal, the the valuing of those deals. I mean, all these things flow. What what difference does it make whether you're investing five hundred thousand, five million, or fifty million? Yeah. So I think it makes a difference in a few ways. So so number one. The way we think about early stage is it's pre-product market fit. And for the entrepreneur, my belief is that that pre-product market fit stage is a very different motion from once you find product market fit. And back in back in the days where you gave $5 million to a startup company, there was actually a lot of technical risk mixed in with market risk. And so a two-year development cycle actually made a ton of sense. So you actually needed $5 million to really test things out, build out a technical you know, underpinnings for a product, and then launch it. But the, the reason why now it's a little bit different is because the, the launch cycle, it's not as much technical risk. It's actually much more market risk and product risk. And so... The, the ability to take a small amount of capital and use very lean practices to actually figure out what are your insights, what why should this company exist, what are the critical risks that exist for this business, and de-risk those things first provides a way for minimizing wasted capital and wasted dilution. And in my mind, that's that's the critical innovation that we've seen in the last 10, 15 years in venture is that entrepreneurs are able to do that more effectively. And so as a result, we can really separate out this moment where you're seeking out real insights into something that's really changed that allows you to have venture scale because now you can foresee like an adoption exponential curve. And then be able to develop a, a real meaningful product for that that insight and then capitalize on it. Um, and, and I think that that's the big change that we've seen. It doesn't mean that you don't need capital, right? You still need $10 million at that next round of financing. You need, you know, $20, $30 million to scale. But it's really nice that you actually can box the the amount of capital that you actually put at risk. I love it for our limited partners uh, just as much as I love it for the entrepreneurs who can really figure out like the optimal dilution path for them. Hmm. I, I Obviously, we not only agree, the whole seed industry followed this model. 
So I kind of have an entrepreneur's question for you, Anne. When did you know you were right, right? Because this is one of the few funds, in my opinion, that actually starts with an entrepreneurial insight as opposed to, oh, it's my turn to be a venture person. So you actually, you and Mike have this instinct that it's a lot cheaper to start a company. So how quick did you start going, oh, my God, we're totally right. We're actually five years ahead of these other people. How quick did you know? It was pretty fast. So I worked at um, Charles River Ventures before I went for my PhD. So I'd seen actually the pacing, right? It was like you'd see one really interesting company, you'd do a ton of diligence on it, and that at the end of that, you might say yes or no. But it was like these, these long processes. And I remember there was one of the first times I sat with Mike to look at, it must have been six or seven companies. And... And Mike turns to me, he's like, which ones did you like? And and I said, there were like three of those I liked. <laughs> and he's like, if you could only choose one, which one would you do? And I remember thinking like, I've never actually had to do that in the past. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was a moment where I, the big question had been, how many entrepreneurs realize that this is a financial product that they need? But the world was already there. And and so that, I think that was the real, you know, aha moment for me was realizing, oh, the entrepreneurs have already figured it out. It's we as a financiers didn't really realize that there was all of this demand. I still wrestle with this idea of seed. Uh, first mm-hmm. of all, I... I I, I don't even understand what seed means, frankly. The more the more I the more I see about seed, the less it makes sense as a category. Yeah. And the more it makes sense in the context of exactly what you said, which is how much money does it do you need to develop a a compelling insight yeah. that is investable, right? And so to me, that's really the context of of seed is that. And so the idea that you know the shorthand Seed A B C, you know, it's it's kind of it's 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 inane. It's absolutely inane, and and unfortunately, it is the convention. So everybody will say, "I'm seed, I'm A," and what that really means is, I got my first check, I got my second check, mm-hmm. I got my third check. They don't think about it in the context of really the process of developing a company and what you need to do at each stage of elimination of risk. So, you mentioned Steve Blank, and I I do think that that he and Eric came up with a really interesting idea of minimum viable product. But I will tell you that almost every deal I've ever done needed a lot of capital very early to develop technologies. And there were huge checks necessary, especially in the hardware businesses, for expansion of those and scaling. And, and nevertheless, you tried to sort of you know use these concepts of insight development and also risk elimination before you actually start spending a lot of capital. So help me with this a little bit. Is is your approach to the industry confined to particular types of businesses? Particular, you mentioned, for instance, that you do pre-product investing, but are you doing pre-technology investing? What risk do you actually take on and what do you hope to accomplish with your check? Great question. I think this is probably the most important question that investors have to understand when they they look at what stage they invest in and what what diligence they're going to do and where their expertise lies. I believe that 
in most venture scale businesses, the reason it's venture scale is that there is an imminent adoption curve that's about to take place. And for some VCs, that could be the next five years, maybe that there's a little bit longer. Most seed stage players are really looking for one to two years for that adoption pull to start happening. What that means is you have to think about what's going to cause that adoption pull. Usually, there are four reasons. One, it could be totally new product category, new feature sets, better, faster, cheaper on a product side. Sometimes it's a new business model. A new margin structure is possible, new way of pricing something. A third is distribution. There's a completely new distribution path that's been uncovered um, and we're able to execute against it. And the last is there's been some major shift in the ecosystem, maybe for a variety of different reasons. When you look at the cause of what are those four massive changes that causes an adoption curve to inflect, it's, it's a lot of times because of some regulation that changed. It could be because of a societal change. But the third is it's a technological change. If the technological change is sort of something that's built into the system, so as an example, GPS is now in all of your phones, that is a change that as a seed stage investor, I can leverage. Hmm. But if you're saying we're going to have to, you know, take CRISPR technology and commercialize Hmm. it, Hmm. that is not something a small fund seed stage investor should be investing into. So this is why I don't invest into hardware. This is why I don't invest into biotech or Mm. in many cases, even just hardcore tech where I used to love investing into this idea of radical science. And I've learned my lesson (laughs) that that is something we ought to leave to the larger investors who could put in $10 million and give the entrepreneurs the runway to take out the technical risk and really develop something that is productized and put it into the market. That That is is not a risk that I'm willing to take. When I think about what you're doing, you've given me something to really hang my hat on now, which is different when I think about seed, which is it's kind of insight development. You know, it's really that insight about that market adoption and inflection that you want to accomplish with those first checks in. And if you've got a product or service or technology that lends itself to demonstrating that with that small check in that period of time, then, it, then it's really a good candidate for seed. That's exactly right. The, the other caveat that I make, and you know, some entrepreneurs will say to me, you say you're early stage and you said that my company's too early for you. What gives? I'll tell you what that means. Usually that means that you don't actually have a great insight. It's it's usually an insight that is well understood by the market. And so there are a massive number of companies that have entered into the space. And so now it's a free-for-all. And so from my perspective, I don't have anything to differentiate the good from the great companies. Mm. And so in that case, you're better served coming in later 
because what really differentiates those businesses is not the insight, but the operational rigor. So every company needs to understand where their competitive edge is. And seed stage, you know, where we're writing one to $3 million checks, we are supposed to be investing into real insight development versus those other types of companies that really are in a highly competitive, operationally intensive space, they are better served from a larger investor where they can just wait it out and see who actually is best at executing. That makes so much sense. And and so how about we apply this exact same metric right back on our own business of venture capital? Mm-hmm. 15 years after your insight, we now are in a spot where there are some 4,000 seed funds by certain counts, right? Literally. Like, we used to joke, there's 20 of you now. What do you do when there's 200? And we're at 4,000 now, right? So literally, as the entrepreneur and fund manager, how have you stayed disciplined in now this sea, uh, this Cambrian explosion of seed funds that has happened over these 15 years? Coming back to this notion of What is your strategy? I think there's two elements to that. One is how do you differentiate yourself amongst a sea of people who have what seems like a very similar strategy? And then the second is we always talk about what is the appropriate fund size? Um, Because we do believe that the fund size fundamentally determines what our strategy becomes. Uh, The math that I always describe to my students is let's take a $100 million fund. It's always been said like you need to triple that to be a good fund. So let's say I need to turn my $100 million to $300 million. You know, a lot of these seed funds, if they're really lucky, they own 5% of a big winner at the end of the day. So that means that that $300 million comes from a $6 billion market cap business. Because let's be honest, It's usually one or two winners within your fund that really carries the day, right? So that means that in every fund that is $100 million, they believe that they can own 5% of a $6 billion market cap company. And to me, that's a really important thing to think about because there are billion-dollar funds being raised, you know, multi-billion dollar funds being raised. And that tells you something about what the GP investing into that startup really believes about what they are capable of and what the expectations are. Even for a $100 million fund, I'm walking in saying to myself, this founder is capable of a $6 billion exit. So if that founder comes to me and says, guess what, Ann, I'm so excited. We have an acquirer for $250 million. I'm going to look that person dead in the eye and say, that's nothing to be proud of right now, right? We had a social contract for a $6 billion exit, whether or not you realized it. And, And so founders need to know that story for sure. But investors also need to understand that because If you don't have that mindset, if you're just saying, oh, this is like a hot area, it's a good startup, it's a good deal, 
you know, you're not thinking about it in the right way. And if you're saying, what's the difference between a $100 million fund and a $500 million fund? You're talking $6 billion exit to now $30 billion exit. These are the things that you need to be thinking through. What level of confidence do you have? Does your strategy fit that? Are you getting the right ownership? Uh, and so the motivations are quite simple. It comes down to just basic, basically like a little bit of addition and multiplication. What kind of ownership do you get? I mean, you know, the old days, five and 50, actually, I, I can remember I used to invest a million, $2 million, end up usually about 30% of a company. That's what I would do. That's what I would get. Um, how do you manage now? Against the economics in, that you just set forth, which I think are very yeah. correct, very accurate. How do you manage your ownership? What do you get? I mean, aren't you signing a safe it's going to be diluted out at some higher price that you don't even know what that's going to be. Yeah. And so your ownership is, can't, you can't even determine what your ownership is when you're going in and writing your first check. Yeah. So I, I generally don't love safes <laughs> for yeah. exactly yeah. that reason. You yeah, joined a party. <laughs> right. Like I feel like founders also have no idea what they sold and they're layering safe over safe right. over safe. Um, so I, I generally have a rule of thumb that if it's less than a million dollars, I'm okay with a safe, but generally that's not my, my core investment, right? My core investment is a check between one and $3 million. And we are generally getting North of 10%. Mm -hmm. If I'm not getting North of 10%, then I'm not going to hit that bogey of 5% at exit. Cause we know mm -hmm. a lot of these companies are raising a ton of capital and so that that's where my head's at. How do I justify getting north of 10%? And this is where I think we have a, a strategy that's a little bit different is that I don't actually make a ton of investments. I operate a lot more like a regular venture capitalist because last year I made two investments. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason is I'm really working closely with these founders and spending with some of them, you know, a call a week to make sure that we're on that right path. And so if I don't get north of 10%, A, I have no idea what's going on in the company, but B, we aren't giving them the right advice. I'm not drinking my own Kool-Aid that I believe that I can help them go and develop their sort of high torque capacity. Um, of getting really started at this stage of the business development. Um, so that that's our strategy. We say, you know, we want more ownership because we will actually put in the work. It is interesting. By your numbers, you have to be three times more successful than I was, essentially, I, because I got three times the ownership. I mean, that's sort of the difference in three that's decades. Right. right? Yeah. And I mean, like, we kind of disrupted ourselves at the end of the day because now you're seeing, you know, seed stage and big quotes like investors who are now investing, you know, three, five, six million right. dollar checks into seed stage and they are not getting 30 percent of a company. Right. Um, so it's really interesting to see that. Um, but you're you're right. Like we have to be more successful. And I think that that's the hard part of like, are we are we right, making the right bets? Are these businesses more successful these days? Are they less risky? Some people want to say yes. I think a lot of a lot of the more experienced players say no. You know. Yeah. 
Right. So, and one of the one of the follow ups to this then is talk to us about reserve strategy because, in my opinion, you're describing more life cycle seed than high velocity seed, mm-hmm. and is that different than it was 15 years ago, or is it the same as it was? Talk to us about reserves and how much you're fighting in those next rounds. And if the proof's not there, how much you're doubling down. Talk to us about how Floodgate thinks about those hard problems. Okay, so the backstory here is that Mike and I made terrible decisions in our first fund around reserves. I think at one point we looked at our, that funded extraordinarily well. But if we just looked at a reserve strategy it was a huge returns drag because Mike and I were very emotional. And between the two of us, we would have all sorts of reasons to keep turning one more card. And because it was just the two of us, we'd convince each other of our love of a particular (laughs) company. It was just terrible. And I think like the math was one of our CFOs actually turned to us and said, if you had just randomly deployed your reserves dollars, you would have done better. <laughs> and so that was when we decided we should fire ourselves from reserve strategy. <laughs> and we hired Iris as a partner into our fund. And she is entirely responsible for all of our follow-on financing. And basically what we do is we give her a checkbook equal to the size of any of the other partners. And she is in charge of offensive reserves. And so she is supposed to deploy her checkbook as aggressively as possible. She doesn't have to go find new deals. She's just taking a look through our portfolio and saying, if I deploy this against the very best in our portfolio, then I should get at least equal returns to the early stage, right? And so what I have to do is I have to convince her to deploy offensive dollars against the best of my companies. Mm -hmm. And so what that allows us to do is preserve a few things. Number one, I don't have to wear multiple hats anymore. I could just be the fan that I really want to be of our portfolio companies. And I'm the advocate within our partnership for that company. And Iris is checking from a less emotional standpoint of whether or not this company deserves an offensive check. And I appreciate that sort of separation of church and state. Now we have also what we call our defensive reserves to to help these companies, especially like, because there are certain situations where we just have to put in the capital and we will do that. Um, but I, I like this separation where we have the ability to say, hey, this is a company that we really want to, we want to invest into. It also, I've just found that reserves is just so hard because you might have all these different biases around, you know, the early companies in your fund and then the the companies later on in the fund cycle get less attention. And if you have someone who's really thinking about deployment across a fund life cycle, they're going to be just so much more thoughtful about it. That's a great innovation. I, I like that a lot. I've known you and Mike for a lot of years. That's the first I ever knew that you guys did that. We, we know each other pretty well in the big yeah. scheme of things. 
I, I actually think that that's fascinating that that separation is that explicit by the job. Yeah. I, I, I'm literally just daydreaming in my head to contentious discussions at my own fund where if one person had that job versus all of us splitting it, man, that would have been a lot easier discussion. Yeah, and when we look at our our operations, especially from our last fund, and we say, how do we deploy the capital? We just want to be able to say, we deployed the reserves against the top third of our portfolio. And, right. and if not, like the top third, like is it the top five investments that we have? And we're starting to see that. So it's, that's, I think, you know, a, it just speaks to Iris's incredible judgment and her lack of being swayed by, you know, the the tears and the gifts that we give <laughs> right. her. But um, <laughs> right. she's also she's just a great she has great judgment. One other thing I want to talk to you about, and then Randy will get the next question, is you have always been a syndicate friendly fund. And in the increasingly sharp elbows world of seed. Being syndicate friendly, in particular to get past hard things like product market fit, that's always been our preference as well. Talk to us about being syndicate friendly, having other investors around the table, how that makes Iris's job maybe easier or harder because you have to support a syndicate. Uh, talk to us about how you think about syndication and, and if you think some of these current trends of one fund doing the deal are good or bad. Oh, I'm a huge fan of syndication mostly because especially at this stage i don't i don't have even close to all the answers and i want there to be a rigorous debate about as many things as we possibly can be discussing right and having everyone's different perspectives and and actually experiences is so critical and so you know back in the day i remember when we invested in TaskRabbit. I had $500,000 and I thought Leah needed a million. So we went to Steve Anderson. Steve says, yes, I want to put money in. And then after a while, Steve and I say, you know, we really need another $500,000. So we go we go to first round capital, right? And it was so fun because having all of those big brains around the table was like the experience of like board meeting or like an investor meeting we all learn from each other. And I, I I love that so much that I actually even do uh, what I call unpartner meetings um, with a bunch of other angels. And I literally show these angels and some of them are in small funds. I, I show them like what I'm looking at in any given week. I say, here's some of these companies that I'm, I'm diligencing. Here's how I'm thinking about it. Um, and then I always leave room anywhere from, you know, half of the round, at least a few hundred thousand dollars. And usually what I'm trying to do is leave enough in the round that another seed fund would find it reasonable to come in. And then right. I tell the the invest the the founder, look, you could give it to one fund or you could give it to a few angels, like whatever you want to do and we'll construct it together. Because I love having another set of eyes on the advice that I'm giving, uh, how we're interacting with the entrepreneur, what do they see in the business? I think that's just critical. It's the same reason you don't want to just be operating on your own. You love having a partnership is because you get the, the richness of all of those different perspectives. 
How, how do you think about the time necessary for outcomes? So if you're getting involved as early as you are, arguably the first check-in, and the average gestation of a public company today is 10 years plus before you actually get to the public markets, um, maybe you can do an M&A deal in your, between years five and 10. Uh, how do you think about your fund and managing your fund, your reserves, and the amount of dollars that you're investing in any particular year based upon that length of time before totally. you actually begin to see outcomes? So Randy, like, I think this is, this is the critical question. And the one word you didn't mention that actually is very hard for smaller funds these days is recycling. So when we were first coming into the market, there was this beautiful thing that happened, which was at the seed stage, you had optionality. And all of these larger companies would actually acquire seed stage businesses, even before you got to the A. And you could get them acquired from anywhere between 20 to like $150 million. A lot of the larger tech companies, I believe, got wise to the fact that none of these acquisitions ended up being ones where these young founders stayed for the long term. And so I think the industry kind of soured on these seed stage acquisitions. And so that optionality doesn't really exist anymore. And so you really have to be building for that long term. And that means it's sort of a 10, 12, I mean, you know, 15 year cycle. And we are preparing our limited partners for that. The one bogey in there that's changed things a little bit is crypto. So because crypto has this inherent capability of having providing liquidity to investors earlier, there has been sort of a, a weird liquidity cycle we've seen in that market, but now there's crypto winter, so who knows? But I do think sort of core tech tends to have this much, much longer cycle which then means, you know, a lot of investors don't get to recycle funds unless they figure something else out. Um, and I think that's that's the real tricky question right now. And I haven't actually heard many clean answers to it. It's just sort of, well, you got to get like good exits in the, the beginning or, you know, you do crossover investing and you have one of your later stage investments get some money from one of your you know, newer funds, those are not clean answers in my mind. So I think that's the major challenge. And are the large venture funds in their seed investments, are they a problem for you? Because they're, they're kind of one-offs for these guys, right? They're, they're buying optionality. They don't care about pricing. They don't really care about check size. And as a result, they can really spoil your economics. When I'm going up against a larger venture capital firm, and this does actually happen quite often these days. And they are offering a seed, sometimes even a pre-seed check. There's a few things that I, I think through with the founder. So one is this opportunity to invest into the company for me is not just an option bet. I'm not investing so that I can make a core investment later on. This is my core product. 
And so what that means is I'm making a high conviction investment into you. You are one of two to four investments I'll make this year. The second thing is, if you want to get the managing partner from, you know, big fund with $5 billion assets under management to invest into you and they say they will, then ask them for not only the check that will matter to the fund, but also ask for them to take a board seat. And if they'll do that, then you should take a check from them. But if they're offering a two, three, four million dollar check out of their massive fund, and they're offering you an associate to go on to your board, then that's not that's not a core strategy for that fund. And you want to be a core strategy for that fund. And and the the last thing I'll generally say is, you know, go and talk to actually multiple of our portfolio companies about that experience of taking an option bet from one of these larger funds. The major issue ends up being, if you prove everything right, then great. Life is wonderful, but life would have been wonderful if you took a check from Floodgate as well. If things are okay, and you haven't fully proven everything out, that fund will not preempt around. They will ask you to go out and raise from other folks and then they will provide you with a term sheet. And then if things are bad, they won't even offer that. And so you're essentially taking one conversation and one potential next round investor off the table in order for that opportunity to take an option bet from this fund. And is it really worth it? And so far, we have a pretty good track record because we actually have companies that have taken, you know, a pre-seed check from us and then actually a follow-on financing from, you know, a, a larger fund and the time spent there wasn't that great. And then actually the next round of financing was harder. Our argument is you know, if you want a badge, then that is probably the way to go. But if you actually want the right help at this time of your development, then I'm your gal. And hopefully they listen. And I want to hit on something you said that I'm, I really respect that you've always done throughout your career. You mentioned how Mike showed you his deals. You worked with Steve Blank, who wrote The Seven Steps to Epiphany, probably the how-to book that kicked off, for lack of a better word, open source VC. So, so talk to us about this philosophy that I think you really, really demonstrate day in, day out of, hey, I'm going to tell you where it's at. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to be open source with, source with what I'm doing. I really think it's helped the industry a lot. I'd love your thoughts on that and how it's affected the industry. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know if it's affected the industry, but I, I really, I actually believe that I benefited from all of this sort of open sourcing. I mean, I remember listening to Randy when I was at Stanford and having, you know, people like Ted Schlein come in and meet with me and talk to talk to students. And I think my whole career has been built on the shoulders of people actually 
teaching me the principles of how they work, just doing everything that people showed me in my early days in my career. Um, oh, gosh, people were just so incredibly generous. And I remember Doug McKenzie talk about sort of the work that they did in forming just what what is Kleiner Perkins and what's become today and the legend that it is, listening to partners at Sequoia, all of those folks work like crazy and it's it's not glamorous and it's a lot of hard work and it's like, you know, getting on a phone call at like three in the morning because someone's freaking out. It's that kind of thing. And so you can actually open source everything. You could talk about your investment thesis. You can tell people like, this is how I do things. And the truth of the matter is the beauty of technical innovation is there are so many more ideas. There's so many more entrepreneurs. There's so many great things to invest in. And I actually do believe that. I think there is massive abundance in this world. And and so keeping everything a secret is not necessarily the way to grow your business or or to share in the the fruits of your labor. So, you know, as I said before, I'm a better investor when I when I'm seated next to other people. And and so my hope is that we could increase the number of seats around the table. That is a wonderful sentiment. And and in in the interest of there being no secrets, I I want to share something that probably a lot of people don't know, which is when Kleiner Perkins was thinking about succession, we really wanted Mike and Ann to join Kleiner Perkins. And they were very committed to their model and not to trying to restart a large, you know, multi-billion dollar venture firm. Um, and I, for one, was incredibly sad that we weren't able to bring on somebody like Ann to sort of chart the next 20 years at Kleiner Perkins. But they're doing such great work at Floodgate that I think the industry has, has benefited even more. Thank you. So that gives me my last question. So other than don't do it, what advice would you give the person thinking about starting the 4,000th and first seed fund? Oh, man. I, you know, I'm just one of these people. I like to zig when everyone zags. And so, you know, I loved it right. when people were like, can you not get a job? Is that why you're doing this? It's this like <laughs> right. the most stupid thing I've ever heard. And so I would say to anyone who's thinking about it, like, think about how you are different. Right. Like the thing that I hate about 4,000 venture firms is like, I hate competing. <laughs> I don't love it. And so I've always wanted to figure out a way to be different and to not have to compete. And so if you're thinking about that seed fund, at least think about not how you are better. Think about how no one has figured out some some subsector of this space. Um, and if anything, like maybe go figure out a totally different way of financing a different subsector of companies. Maybe it's not tech companies. That's what I would do. I could not agree more. I mean, Mike was an advisor to my company when I was still CEO, Aggregate Knowledge, before kind of Floodgate started. Yeah. 
and he is a he is a CMO taught me that lesson. He said, Martino, as a CMO, I'm talking to you, not as an investor. It's a lot easier to be different than better. Better is freaking hard. You're going to learn this, Martino. And it's nice to see that you've applied that to venture instead of forgetting about what it was like to run the company. Yeah, he would say, you know, Jerry Garcia always said, and he would say, be the only. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's exactly right. And I cannot thank you enough for your candor about this topic. On behalf of me and Randy Komisar, we really appreciate you appearing today on Lunch Pail VC. Randy. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Randy and Paul. I'm such a huge fan of both of you that I found this to be a lot of fun and such a big honor. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. Lunch Pail VC was created by Randy Komisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest's journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Komisar, see you next time. <laughs>